There enters then these lower parts of the world the Son of God, descending from his heavenly home, and yet not quitting his Father's glory, begotten in a new order by a new nativity. In a new order, because being invisible in his own nature, he became visible in ours. And he whom nothing could contain was content to be contained. Abiding before all time, he began to be in time. The Lord of all things, he obscured his immeasurable majesty and took on him the form of a servant. Being God that cannot suffer, he did not disdain to be man that can, and, immortal as he is, to subject himself to the laws of death. The Lord assumed his mother's nature without her faultiness, nor in the Lord Jesus Christ, born of the virgin's womb, does the wonderfulness of his birth make his nature unlike ours. For he who is true God is also true man, and in this union there is no lie, since the humility of manhood and the loftiness of the Godhead both meet there. Welcome everyone, this is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi today to talk about the Council of Chalcedon. Zelwyn, how's it going? It's going great. It's definitely winter over here and things are cold and crisp and wonderful. It, it warms my Norwegian heart, so. <laughs> Very nice. Weather here is sometimes wintry, sometimes feels like fall, so I guess that's about what we expected. Lost a f- quite a few shingles the other day, uh, thanks to some wind that we have out here and the land where there aren't many trees, although I'm sure you can relate to that. <laughs> Very much but, so. But, uh, <laughs> but other than that, you know, weather posting is pretty mild, pretty mild. That said, I think you have some news that our fans and listeners might want to hear about. Yeah, and this has something to do explaining why there's kind of been some hiccups lately in our publishing schedule. I have recently taken a call to central North Dakota in Hanover and New Salem to serve the dual parish here. And so I'm still kind of in the midst of getting settled in and trying to figure out how everything's going to go, but it's it's going well. I'm really excited to to start work here and to to get going. Well, that is exciting. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about your congregations? Well, I I do find it interesting. The one that I have the parsonage next to, the congregation was formed a few months before North Dakota became a state. So I think that's kind of an interesting little tidbit. But they're two very good congregations. Like I say, it's kind of in central North Dakota. So I moved about 100-ish miles to the east from where I was, even though I'm still in the same circuit. Go figure. That just goes to show you how big the circuits are out here. I'm still just trying to get the ropes for everything around here, which is kind of difficult to do, especially since I'm starting in Advent. So I guess I'm hitting the ground running, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Well, you know, it's good for you. <laughs> Keeps the blood pumping. You know, and at the end, you've only moved two hours or so east, but you're in a new time zone now. So that's kind of fun. <laughs> in the same time scheduling zone. scheduling these things a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> Central time zone dominant right now in the I, Word Fitly Spoken crew. I guess so. We kind of are the uh, the majority. We'll have to grab someone from the West Coast and Mountain Time now just to balance everything out. <laughs> so anyway, 
We are continuing our discussion of the ecumenical councils, and which one are we on? We are moving into the fourth ecumenical council, also called the Council of Chalcedon. And that's and so we're going to be talking about the history behind that and kind of what's leading up to that, as well as the, the theology that's actually presented at that council. We get a lot of important things that come out of this one, and we'll talk about that a little bit. One big doctrine that's associated with it, again, we will get into that. Why might this council be familiar to our listeners? Because it is at this council that you have the formal definition of Christ having you know, two natures in one person, as well as also the confirmation of what we have as the Nicene Creed. It becomes its major form is affirmed at this council, and so what we have now and what we say, for the most part, with one very notable exception, which comes much later in the West, we have the setting forth of the Nicene Creed that we recite, you know, pretty much every Sunday or, or frequently within our churches. So this is a, an epic setting council, and it cannot be understated how important this will be for the future of Christianity as well as for the future of Christianity in the West. Yeah, and we're slowly working our way through these councils and then honestly working our way up towards the schism too. So Right. Or schism, if you're part of the schism cartel instead of the schism <laughs> crew, which, whichever you prefer to say. It's America. Do what you want. Go with what you feel. Well, all right. <laughs> That's right. So let's start into the history, Zalman. Where, where do we begin? Well, we kind of have to pick up where we left off of course, with the previous council and talking about what's going on within the Roman Empire and how everything is basically continuing to collapse in the West, even while there are some serious political and military problems in the East as well. And so I would recommend for our listeners, especially if this is the first of the councils that you have listened to, to go back to our previous three, starting with Nicaea, and do listen to them in order, because this, these all kind of build on each other, and, I, and we don't have time to go through all of the history all over again. However, that being said, in the West, we are seeing the, that half of the Roman Empire continuing to collapse. And Honorius, who was the emperor in the West, died in the year 423, but he doesn't have any children. He doesn't have an heir to pick up the emperorship after him. And so his relative, Theodosius II, who we're going to be talking about quite a bit throughout this section, actually doesn't name a successor right away. And so this causes a, a kind of a rift within the West, and you have this controversy where a usurper by the name of John rises up in 423, tries to make himself the legitimate emperor. This causes a kind of civil war that Theodosius eventually gets around to solving and also elevating his relative Valentinian III up to be emperor in the West. But this turmoil, this civil war, this strife in the West is what's really characterizing this whole period. And in fact, uh, the, the Gauls and, uh, who had been moving into the empire throughout the previous century are continuing to dismantle the West and to try to, to pick it up and take over. And you have one big example of that being uh, the Vandals, where we get the word vandalizing from, rising up under Geyseric around 429, 
taking over northern Africa and eventually coming back to attack Rome and Italy on a number of occasions. And so this period of war and strife is something that the East is also having to respond to. So what do you wanna, where do you want to pick up with that, Willie? Well, yeah, so the West is in shambles. This is probably going to help explain partially why Constantinople is so important. Right. Tell us a little bit about Constantinople. Well, Constantinople, of course, uh, the city which Constantine founded, is rapidly rising to be the center of the Roman world, even though they all still kind of hold Rome, old Rome up as the, you know, the kind of the other, the, the main head. And so this conflict between Rome and Constantinople in uh, Rome in the West, Constantinople in the East, is also going to explain some of the political intrigue, even at this council, at the Council of Chalcedon, with some of the canons which are passed. So it is this tension between East and West, and a crumbling West and a rising East. It all kind of plays into why some of these things happen the way that they do. Right. And I don't know if it's putting the cart before the horse here, but Constantinople, New Rome, yes or no? Well, they saw themselves as New Rome. Well, it's in the canons, and we hold to this council. So, well, it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. So, press F. Well, right for now. <laughs> for, for now. now. <laughs> yeah, and this is so. I mean, we do accept this council as as Lutherans, and this, nevertheless, is very foreign to us, right? As a product of Western Christianity, one. When speaking geographically, we still tend to think of Rome as the center in a lot of ways, right. at least historically. Right. So, so Constantinople, I think, in our historical memory is not as significant as it would be in the Orthodox churches today. Or as significant as it was even for the, the Roman church in those days. You know, Constantinople really this is... This is true. I mean, I mean yeah. yeah. It really is important. Right. Well, so. yeah. And, and I think as we unpack this, and it's really outside the scope of this particular episode, but... This jockeying between Old Rome and New Rome, which really isn't jockeying so much at this point, is going to inform the struggle over the primacy of the Bishop of Rome. Right. You know, the question is, is there one Supreme Pontiff, the Bishop of Rome, or do the bishops sit equally, that sort of thing? You know, th those debates that, by virtue of being a product of Western Christianity, we are actually involved in, whether we remember it. Well, that's, that's a great point, because the whole doctrine of Petrine supremacy, or this, you know, papal supremacy of Rome, is going to be informed by this kind of rising tension between old and new Rome. Old Rome doesn't want to give up its prerogatives, and so under Leo the Great, who is actually in this time period, and we're going to meet him in a little bit, he's going to really take another major step forward into the formulation of papal supremacy. And that idea of Rome is the, the head because they, dis, they come from Peter. So, yeah, this does actually, we should, as Lutherans, pay attention to this because it is important. But we got a lot of history to get. <laughs> a lot. So let's, let's keep on going. Another major figure in this period that our listeners would probably be fairly familiar with if they just know the name is Attila the Hun. And Attila is coming right. in from the east and swooping into the empires and causing a tremendous amount of havoc. He's just ripping everything up. And so he becomes the sole ruler of the Huns in the year 434 and begins to harass the Roman borders in the east, 
kind of on and off again in, in that same year. Now, what made him dangerous to Rome was not so much that it was just another barbarian horde, because they've been dealing with barbarian hordes for quite a while now. The Goths have been coming in and causing problems before. What made the Huns dangerous was their mobility, because the contemporary historians said that they were born in the saddle. That's, I mean, that's how familiar they were with horses. But they also had siege weapons, which means that they were able, at least starting in, in the year 443, to actually attack, assault, and capture cities, which they did on multiple occasions and actually raised them and took all of their valuables. So this Attila is a enemy that the empire cannot afford to underestimate. And in fact, Theodosius, the emperor, continuously tries to buy him off, trying to pay him so that he'll just stay away and, to, and just not attack at all. And in 447, Attila has a major incursion into the Eastern Empire, makes it as far as Thermopylae during this raid, but he never quite makes it to Constantinople. So he's, he's got the whole empire on edge, west and east, and causing all these problems. Now, the, the biggest one, and the one that we want to focus on just briefly again, but it's the most important, is in the year 450, when Honoria, who is Valentinian III's sister, so Valentinian III member being the Western emperor, sends a plea to Attila for help because she's being forced to marry a Roman noble and she doesn't want to get married. And so she sends Attila her ring. Now, what she meant by that is kind of lost to history. What Attila interprets it as is a marriage proposal. Now, Attila, of course, had hundreds of wives. I mean, he was just getting married all the time, so it wouldn't have been no big deal to him. But this per perceived marriage proposal, he sees as an invitation to take over the West. <laughs> yeah, he, he, wants a very, he wants a very generous dowry, the entire empire. <laughs> I mean, you got you to gotta admire the guy in a lot of ways. Yeah, I'll marry your sister. If you, if you pay me this much, <laughs> I want, I it, want all. it all. Well, he's even recorded as, as having said, um, sent a message to both emperors saying, prepare my palace. I'm on the way. I mean, he's he's definitely bold, if nothing else. <laughs> I mean, he's he, he's he's good at tactics and he's a great troll. I mean, it, let's, let's yeah, put it that he way. really is. <laughs> <laughs> But he's also rather charming, or not charming, he's persuasive because he's able to gather a lot right. of allies, either th mostly through sheer intimidation, right. if anything. And so during his march west to basically claim his perceived dowry as the Western Empire, uh, he's taking several cities in what is now modern France until June 20th, 451, so a few months before the, uh, the Council of Chalcedon, and that'll be important for later. At the Battle of the Catalonian Plains in northeastern France, he basically meets a Roman army there. And even though we're not entirely certain how the battle went, because the, the historical documents detailing this battle are pretty sparse, we do know that this was kind of the high watermark. The Huns are at least defeated enough that they withdraw from France, and this would kind of be the end of their westward push. Now, 
Attila, and this is after the the, the council. I but he this is I think this is important to talk about real quick. Attila will try to invade Italy again a couple of years later in 453, still trying to claim his marriage with Honoria. But in 453, Attila suddenly dies. He'd gotten married again. I mean, literally like his hundredth some wedding. I mean, he he had all kinds of wives and concubines. <laughs> He's, he gets ripping drunk, just completely plastered at this wedding. And all of a sudden he starts hemorrhaging blood out of his nose and he basically dies choking on, on his own blood. Kind of a terrible way to die, but that's what happened to him. And so the, 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 the threat that Attila was causing the empires suddenly came to an end. Well, I mean, that's just how it goes sometimes. There's no grand decisive battle. Sometimes a guy just has an aneurysm and dies. Well, there was also suspicions that his latest wife killed him, but nobody really knows the truth. So, well, yeah, I mean, you know, nobody nobody dies of just a nosebleed like that. But it was 453. <laughs> Things were different then. <laughs> Maybe you drink enough alcohol, you'll you'll die of an aneurysm too. I don't know. Yeah, you never know. But there you go. Either way, he's gone. And so, so what does Theodosius think? Theodosius, about that? I, I mean, imagine he'd be quite pleased to know that. He was gone, but actually by this time, Theodosius, by the time Attila had died, Theodosius had already died too. So it's kind of a, a moot question. But I do want to talk about Theodosius a little bit, but is there anything that you want to talk about the history coming up to that point? Because I think that's kind of where I'm going to leave it off there. No, I think that's good. I think we want to kind of get into the the players, the other players here leading okay. up to Constantinople, or excuse me, leading up to the council. I have mentioned Theodosius II here. He's the grandson of Theodosius the Great, of course. Theodosius as an emperor, unfortunately, he's kind of a terrible emperor. He's noted for his piety. That's one thing he has going for him. He is a very devout man, almost monastic in his prayers and his the way he conducts himself. But because of it, or maybe in spite of it, he's kind of an inattentive, easily swayed man. There's always people jockeying for position around him, trying to get the upper hand with, you know, try, steering him the way that they want him to go. And so, like, you know, he falls out with his wife, Eudokia, over kind of a suspicion that he has of her, which is totally unfounded. And also uh, his jealousy causes him to send people away from the from the capital, from Constantinople He's the target of insurrections because people think that, you know, he could be doing more for, for food supply. Well, I, I know I, I know we said when planning this episode, we didn't want to go entirely into the details right. of his marriage. But tell us about the Apple affair, just because it's worth You, you want to go into the Apple affair? Okay. Yeah, I want to hear about Eudocia's apple. All right. So Eudocia, well, huh. so she was originally a pagan. She was very beautiful, but when she got married, she becomes a Christian. And this was kind of all brought about by a dear friend of Theodosius's by the name of Paulinus. And Paulinus was raised up in the ranks as a result of it. Well, one day on Epiphany 443, a poor man brings a gigantic apple to Theodosius. And Theodosius is so taken by this apple that he buys it from the poor man and gives it to his wife Eudokia as a as a as a gift, kind of as a way of showing his love for her, kind of a little love token. Well, Eudokia turns around and gives it to Paulinus, and Paulinus 
in his innocence, turns around and gives it back to Theodosius because he didn't know where it came from originally. He thought he had just gotten it from Eudokia. Now, this leads Theodosius to become rather suspicious of his wife because this, you know, he gave it to her as a love token. Why is she giving it to Paulinus? And he knows good and well it's the same apple. Exactly. He knows what, what's going on here. You don't forget a, You don't forget an apple like that. <laughs> well, it, it was huge, according to his description. So she lies about it, tells her husband that she ate it. Well, then he basically comes out with and says, no, I know what really happened. And so suspecting an adultery in his wife, he has his best friend Paulinus executed. And his wife goes to Jerusalem for a time to kind of sort things out. So I guess you could say they're separated, but not divorced. All because of an apple. All because of an apple. So Just, don't, the moral of the story is don't re-gift. <laughs> <laughs> and if you do re-gift, at least tell the truth. Come on. <laughs> oh, bread maker. Cool. Yeah, I gave you that one. Oh, this model? No, that this exact one. So <laughs> I don't know. Had to, had to end this segment on the Apple Affair. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of A Word Fitly Spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken, Willie Grill, Zell and Heidi, talking the Fourth Ecumenical Council. So we're slogging right along through the history here, and it's going to get more and more interesting. Church politics is always interesting, possibly never more interesting at this time, and it's quite interesting in our times, too, where the Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew is now seemingly very chummy with not only the United States State Department, but perhaps more sinisterly, the Pope of Rome himself. And I don't know, maybe I'm just a pessimist, Zellin, but it makes me very nervous. Uh, it's all just a coincidence, Willie. It's all Nothing just a coincidence. It. It's not like there's anything prophesied about this or anything. <laughs> you know, it, it's all, it all just is what it, what it is. But maybe we should do an episode on that. <laughs> we might have to. Yeah, we might. It, it might be worth it. We'll see, we'll see what develops. You know, I'm keeping my eye on Russia and see what see what their playbook's going to be. Og and Magog. I mean, what? Well, Sorry. I wasn't going that far. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> Bishop Carroll's kind of my barometer for Christianity in that part of the world. So, <laughs> like, you know how you say, uh, he's. I'll put it this way. He's the patriarch that I don't take with a grain of salt. Does that make sense? Fair enough. This Bartholomew stuff is very concerning. 
and certainly the Pope Francis situation is concerning, and then the two coming together is very concerning. Neither here nor there. We're a few centuries away from it, but, you know, it kind of applies here a little bit. Well, speaking of the Bishop of Constantinople, since we're kind of on that topic anyway, I think what we should do to show how it applies is that moving from Nestorius, himself a heretic, and the Bishop of of Constantinople, down to when we get to Dioscorus, who is going to be the main figure in this council, uh, the Council of Chalcedon. So just doing a little bit of brief overview on the history. So after Nestorius is deposed, Maximinian is elected four months later, and it's a controversial election over one named Proclus, and Maximinian is ordained as the Bishop of Constantinople on October 25th, 431. However, Maximinian dies on Monday, Thursday, three years later in 434. And Theodosius, who doesn't want any more problems like in the previous election, immediately appoints Proclus to be the Bishop of Constantinople. Just a couple of quick notes about Proclus. He was described as being a mild man, one who is not at all disposed towards violence, which was kind of unique for his time. And he's also the one who brings back the body of Chrysostom from exile 35 years after he died. And so Chrysostom is kind of repatriated and buried in Constantinople in 438. However, that being said, Proclus dies in the year 446 and is succeeded by Flavian. Flavian is a very pious man. but And if you remember from the previous episode, Cyril of Alexandria, Cyril dies in the year 444 and is succeeded by Dioscorus, so Dioscorus of Alexandria, which begs the question, can anything good come out of Egypt? <laughs> I mean, because seriously, it's like all these problems keep coming out of Egypt. I don't, I don't know if it was worth the, the trouble of trying to hold on to it, but that's neither now here nor there. Now we're back to Bible manuscripts too, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, Egypt, that broken reed. I think that's in a Bible manuscript, isn't it? <laughs> Sounds like law to me. I don't know. (laughs) It is. It is law. (laughs) This leads us to another figure. So you have Flavian, you have Dioscorus, and then we have a eunuch. And in Byzantine history and Eastern Roman history, whenever you hear the word eunuch, that should immediately make you stop and worry because something bad's about to happen. Chrysaphius the eunuch who is the Grand Chamberlain, kind of the the right-hand man of Theodosius. Because he's trying to gain further influence over Theodosius, that also leads another man to have influence over Theodosius, and that man was an Archimandrite, or a head monk, named Eutyches. Now, Eutyches was Chrysaphius' godfather and kind of his spiritual advisor. And Eutyches is also the one who is the, the... the source of the heresy that we call Eutychianism. Uh, what is Eutychianism, Willie? Uh, ba- basically that Christ's two natures are mixed into a single nature. So it's it's the opposite of Nestorianism, which says that the two are essentially separate, maybe glued together being the uh, analogy used for Nestorianism. So Eutyches also equates the natures of Christ with the person. So two natures equals two persons. So you can't have that. So everything's got to be mixed together. Does that seem like a, is that a fair definition? I think so. 
He's quoted as saying, Christ had two natures before the incarnation and afterward only one. Whatever that means, but... <laughs> you have to start with two to get a mix. It's an, Yeah, so it's it's like paint, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a third thing, kind of distinct from both of them, so that Christ is still consubstantial with uh, the Father because he still wants to be a Nicene Christian, but he's he's no longer consubstantial with us. He's kind of too different to be like us anymore. And so that's kind of the, the main problem with Eutychianism, is this mixture that causes Christ well, yeah, to be something totally different. In the mixture, different. he becomes something yeah other than what he is revealed to be. Right. But Eutyches isn't a very consistent thinker. And so trying to get a solid, well-thought-out Christology from Eutyches is going to be a kind of a difficult thing to do. But it runs him into trouble, understandably. And so a couple of bishops, one by the name of Domnus of Antioch, accuses Eutyches of Apollinarianism, which uh, we talked about in a previous episode. Right. So, yeah, that's, that's Jesus has a human body but a divine mind. Right. Yeah. So, right. again, not, not really fully man. He's kind of yeah. the, the divine zombie. <laughs> right. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> and then another one is Eusebius of Dorylaeum, who is described historically as having a zeal which made fire seem cool. And he was also <laughs> the one who denounced Nestorius. And so he brings up charges against Eutyches and has him brought before him what's called the Home Synod. And the Home Synod was kind of a semi-permanent council of bishops that was held fairly regularly at Constantinople. And it was kind of a way of dealing with the small claims, if you will, you know, dealing with the small problems in the church. We can, so we don't have to continuously invoke the great big ones. There, I think there was only like a handful of bishops there, like maybe 40 at the most. But anyway, that the point is, is that at this home synod, Eutyches is denounced and condemned. And Flavian, remember, who's the bishop of Constantinople at this point, is heavily involved with the outcome of this, of this synod. Now, this leads Chrysaphius, the eunuch, remember the, the Grand Chamberlain, to basically, he, he wants to take care of this. This isn't how it, shouldn't have, it should have went. He wants to, Theodosius to do something about this. And Theodosius, in his inattentive state, convokes a new council at Ephesus to deal with the problem. Now, this is not what we would call the Second Council of Ephesus. This is actually what we call the Robber Council of Ephesus. This is not accepted as ecumenical by anyone, West or East. So what's happening at this council, which, con which convenes on August the 8th, 449, is under the presidency of Dioscorus from Alexandria, they basically bring all of the, the people together that had condemned Eutyches, and Eutyches is basically lifted up, and all of his detractors are basically pushed out of the church. And the way that Dioscorus did this was through some, well, rather dirty pool. First thing he does is he reads a canon from the, the First Council of Ephesus, which says you can't confess a creed other than Nicene, which everybody agrees to. But then he immediately says, okay, for that reason, Flavian and Eusebius have to be thrown out. And in the heated debate that follows that, Dioscorus calls in the military to come in and basically rough everybody up. <laughs> and some of the bishops are beaten. 
Others are made to sign blank pages, which they would conveniently fill in later. And multiple of these bishops are deposed. Flavian himself is actually dies while in exile because of this council. So just a giant mess, wouldn't you say, Willie? Uh, yeah, probably not the way to do church politics. <laughs> well, thankfully today, church politics are all clean and above board. Yeah, we don't do anything nobody, like this. Nobody in it, yeah, yeah, nobody in any church today does anything underhand. <laughs> oh, I wish that was true. I wish that was true. And so that's the robber council. So what what's the fallout then? So the fallout is this, as I mentioned before, this is the time when Pope Leo, who's called Pope Leo the Great, is alive. He gets upset about this because he had written a very famous letter to Flavian, the Bishop of Constantinople, called the Tome to Flavian. And this tome is going to be very important. In fact, it's it's the selections of which we've read for the cold open and also we'll read a selection of it from the outro. It'll be very important at the Council of Chalcedon. But Leo is very upset with the way everything is gone. He is the one who actually calls it a robber council. And he protests to Theodosia and says, you know, we got to have another council. We got to fix this. This is not how it should have went. Theodosius, again, inattentive. He's not really paying attention, probably half asleep says, no, we don't really need this. And so they are going back and forth. They're fighting, you know, and Leo even goes so far as to say, okay, I'm not going to give you a new, I'm not going to confirm your new bishop in Constantinople until you consent to my tome, until you say that my letter is at least orthodox. And again, this fighting goes back and forth until suddenly on July 28th, 450, Theodosius dies. He's thrown from his horse while hunting and dies shortly after. And so we have a sudden political change in the empire that is going to also cause a big shift in this debate. After Theodosius dies, he doesn't have any successors. He doesn't have any children. And so his sister, Pulcheria, his older sister, Although she had remained a virgin throughout her entire life, she never got married at any point, now marries a military general named Marcion. And Marcion is elected emperor on August 25th, 450. And so his reign, even though he's not related to the Theodosian line in any blood sense, he's at least got that backing in, in through marriage. And as a result... Dioscorus and Eutyches no longer have the political support that they had under Theodosius because Marcion and his wife, Pulcheria, are firmly on Leo's side. And so a lot of the bishops from the, the, at Ephesus too fall in line. You know, they're like, okay, we see, uh, we're going to play along now. I don't know if that's uh, <laughs> commending them or if that's actually saying something about their <laughs> loyalties, but, but some of the bishops don't fall in line. Leo's at least getting to the point where he says, okay, maybe things are fixing themselves. Maybe we don't really need another council, but the emperor and the empress insist on another council. And so a new council is convoked in the year 451. And of course, that is the council of Chalcedon. Now, we're finally to the council itself. Originally, Marcin wanted to have the council at Nicaea. 
again on September the 1st, 451. But if you remember from the first part of this episode, Attila the Hun is still kind of rampaging around. Yes, it's after the Battle of the Catalonian Plains. He's kind of on the downward slide, but nobody knows that yet. And so there's this threat. Well, I can't, the emperor thinks, I can't really leave Constantinople. So let's hold the council somewhere closer so that I can still be involved, but I don't have to leave the city. And so that's why they convoke it at a, a port town just across the Bosphorus from Constantinople at a town called Chalcedon on October the 8th, 451. And there's about 350 to about 500 bishops present at this council, although the numbers aren't totally certain. And before the first session begins on October the 8th, Dioscorus actually tries to have the Pope excommunicated, tries to excommunicate Leo, but nobody really takes him seriously anymore. And so he's rebuffed. And that's just kind of where his supporters are now. So the first session occurs on October the 8th, 451. And it's interesting because when they get into the church where they're holding this, they actually sit across from each other in lines. So it's literally like line versus line, like French assembly kind of style, left versus right. And they start by reading the minutes, so to speak, the, the canons, the acts, the proceedings of the previous councils, and they begin with beginning with reciting the, the Nicene Creed, or what they had as the creed. And as this goes along, more and more bishops leave Dioscorus' side and actually literally go over to the other side. They're like getting up, walking over, and sitting on the other side. And then when they disperse in the evening, uh, they have a a brief worship service, and then they disperse for the day. On the second session, on October the 10th, 451, they read the creed again, and then they read Cyril's second letter, another one of his letters to John of Antioch, and, and notably, Leo's tome to Flavian. That's an important move because now it's becoming an important part of this council, and it's going to affect the way the rest of this goes. The bishops all acclaim are mostly acclaim, this is the faith of the fathers. But some of them aren't very happy with it because they say, well, you didn't read Cyril's third letter and the 12 anathemas. You know, you're missing some stuff. We need to get everything together. And so already there's a little bit of dissent between sides, even on those opposed to Dioscorus. And then in the third session, Dioscorus actually doesn't appear. He's asked to, he's summoned to come, but he keeps refusing. And then the, the legates from Pope Leo condemn him for receiving Eutyches and for denying the tome and for attempting to excommunicate him. And so basically, he's, he's just finally deposed. You know, um, anyone who still supports him is also deposed. On You basically need to accept the tome and this deposition or you're going to be thrown out of the council. And then the fourth session on October the 17th, some Egyptian uh, supporters of Eutyches were condemned after their refusals to submit to the council. Back to Egypt again. Back to Egypt. Always Egypt. <laughs> we did a whole episode on these guys. I know, right? <laughs> but the important and crucial fifth session on October the 22nd, 451, is when they actually begin to write what is called the uh, Chalcedonian Definition. And we're going to talk about the definition on the other side of the break. But 
it's worth noting here that there was some kind of difficulties during its writing because the initial draft of it didn't really make everybody very happy. In fact, it caused a giant debate because the original draft didn't reference the tome, Leo's tome. And because some thought, well, this is just really more about Dioscorus and his problems. So we're going to deal with him. But others insist, no, we got to talk about the tome. You got to include it. And so this debate is going back and forth. And the legates from Pope Leo actually get so hot about this that they threaten to leave. But they finally agree to draw up a statement that will make everybody happy because that's what good compromises do, right? Make everybody mad. (laughs) (laughs) And then on that day, they reviewed the creed as they received it from Constantinople because many were not familiar with it. And then they receive it and, you know, acclaim it. And it becomes what we know as the Nicene Creed with the exception, of course, of the Filioque. Yeah, I mean, when we do, it might be worth saying, and it's good you pointed it out, that it becomes familiar to us as the Nicene Creed, but what we use in the West is, historically honest here, not the original creed. Right. Yeah, there's a a small later edition that's going to be a sticking point between East and West. But we haven't gotten right. that far it's yet. It's small in, in, in words, but it it, it 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 has big consequences. But that's a story for another episode. Well, can I finish the, the last session before Absolutely. we go to the yeah. break? One more session to go. Yep. All right. On October the 25th, which is the closing session, Marcy and the emperor finally comes over to celebrate. And he basically closes this with a few disciplinary matters, including notably, and I know you want to talk about this, Willie. 30 canons. I like them canons. But three of these canons in particular are considered very controversial because it kind of elevates Constantinople or New Rome at the expense of Old Rome, or at least that's how the West is understanding it. And the most important one of these is canon number 28, which seems to make Constantinople equal in privileges to Old Rome. Leo doesn't want anything to do with this. He says, no, I refuse to accept this because, and this is where we were talking earlier in the first section about the Petrine uh, supremacy, you know, the development of, of papal supremacy. Leo says, Rome is first because the bishops of Rome come from Peter. Now, we should talk about that in much detail, maybe in a different episode, but Marcion convinces Leo to assent to the the proceedings by saying, okay, you can accept the council, but reject the canons. Leo accepts this eventually on March the 21st, 453, but it's not until the year 1274 at the Council of Lyon that these canons, these 30 canons, would finally be accepted in the West. So it becomes another one of those sticking points between East and West leading up to the Great Schism. I think that's the last of the history, though, Willie. That's the last of the history. We'll be back with some theology right after this, here on A Word Fitly Spoken. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. 
Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more WordFitly Spoken. And we are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken, Willie Grill, Zell and Heidi, talking the Council of Chalcedon. Well, we've gone through the history of it. We've seen the major players. We've seen the politics in the world and in the church at work, how those two things often overlap, even up until this day. Well, now let's talk about the actual pronouncements uh, doctrinally, what happens at this council, and what's the really big one that's significant for us today? Zellwin. Well, the biggest one would be what we what we referred to earlier as the Chalcedonian definition, and that is the the very clear defining of how Jesus is two natures in one person. And so the the language of that I think is is something that our listeners should be familiar with. So do, do we want to read it, Willie? Okay. Wherefore, following the holy fathers. We all with one voice confess our Lord Jesus Christ, one in the same Son, the same perfect in Godhead, the same perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, the same consisting of a reasonable soul and a body, of one substance with the Father as touching the Godhead, the same of one substance with us as touching the manhood, like us in all things apart from sin, begotten of the Father before the ages as touching the Godhead, the same in the last days, for us and for our salvation, born from the Virgin Mary, the Theotokos, as touching the manhood, one in the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way abolished because of the union, but rather the characteristic property of each nature being preserved and concurring into one person and one substance, not as if Christ were parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from the beginning spoke concerning him, and our Lord Jesus Christ instructed us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. Thus ends the definition. Yeah, quite a long one, but an important one nonetheless. Absolutely. You know, take that, CTCR documents. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, think of think of the think of the profundity. I mean, in what what to us really seems like a long definition, and it is, but it's relatively short in the number of words used, but so much to unpack there. Right. It's really quite succinct. Well, there's the Catholic faith. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, our listeners might be struck by how similar it sounds, for example, to the creeds, like especially the Nicene or even the Athanasian creed, that language of with, you know, as touching the Godhead, as touching the manhood, that God is the same 
perfect, you know, truly God, truly man. So, I mean, this is language that is familiar both to us and to them, because, I mean, they're receiving it from their predecessors, too. I mean, this is the faith which has been handing down, as they say, the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. But the right. but the important thing that this sets forth is, is perhaps for the first time, you have a very clear statement of what that two natures in one person really means. And so nature and person are no longer identical terms like it had been with Eutyches, but Christ in a unique way becomes the God-man, the one who is you know, God and man at the same time. I mean, how do, where do you want to unpack this, Willie? I mean, we, we should talk about it a little bit more. Well, yeah, I mean, this is... Okay, first and foremost, to modern listeners who are not accustomed to the church taking things so seriously, this seems like splitting hairs. Right. I think to many to many modern ears, and maybe even to some ancient ears it did too. But it's about defining God rightly, in particular defining God the Son correctly. If we have a wrong conception of God, then everything is lost. Right. So we have to understand this right. This is foundational to the faith. I mean, the, the church does fall when you don't have a right doctrine of God, a right, un, excuse me, a right understanding of God. And, and so that's what this is about. This is important. People get mad nowadays or sometimes if somebody gets their name wrong or mispronounces their name or something. You know, they're personally offended. Well, you should probably be offended more when someone gets your Lord Jesus Christ's nature wrong, too. Right. You know, we, we become offended at the slightest thing. We don't understand bad doctrine as an offense in a way, and it is. We 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 tend to think of it as just some sort of academic exercise and it's, it's not I, I do think that souls are in danger when we depart from this definition when we depart from the wisdom of the ancient fathers here and go our own way because now we are no longer safely guarded we we are sort of at our own devices there and we don't want people to go off into uh, myths you know as the bible says right and and so I, I do think it's it's extraordinarily important and 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 just at the basis of it, you know, we can say, well, why does it need to be this way? Why do the two natures have to be this way? Well, ultimately, that's how it's been revealed by God. This is how He has revealed Himself, the reality of Himself. But I think at the very base level, the issue is if you get God wrong, then you get everything wrong. The foundation isn't strong, then everything else falls. And we're living at a time. Where, yeah, I mean, even at the time that that the creeds are are written, there is heresy everywhere. But even today, I mean, look, you look at American Christianity, which is primarily what we focus on, and the movements that come from America into the rest of the world. I mean, predominantly, for being, you know, honest with our typical episodes and focuses, oneness Pentecostalism, for example, is out there very popular. You have the Jehovah's Witnesses who are popular who espouse the Arian heresy. And so a lot of these old heresies are repeated again, and I think monophysitism is repeated a lot of times by accident, too. People fall into that trap because this is not the creed, or this is not the definition or the counsel that is taught on as much as right. the other ones. 
And I think perhaps because it is so technical. And to be fair, too, monophysitism or this idea of Christ having, you know, one nature is is actually persists in the Coptic churches. So, I mean, this isn't something that goes away. Correct, correct. No, rarely do the, do the councils totally stamp out heresy. I don't know if there's one example where every single adherent to a heresy was wiped out. Or, excuse me, I should say converted. Maybe the Canaanites in the Old Testament. I think the closest you get to that is with the count, the first Council of Constantinople with its formal and complete condemnation of Arianism because the Arian heresy, yes, it's come back in the Jehovah Witnesses, but for a while there, it was pretty much dead. Yeah, it definitely goes, it's very small and underground if it, if it exists at, at all. It's it's not the, the big routing out like you have, or it, it still doesn't persist in popularity like it does even after right. Nicaea, because that's going right. to take a lot of work. So, but but you're absolutely um, right. You know, even even though condemned by the council, it just takes. <laughs> but work. you're absolutely right, though. I mean, we are dealing with live issues even today, and with this council in particular, you're dealing with live issues, people you're actually going to meet. You know, because I've I've met one as Pentecostals. Yeah. You know, we've all met Jehovah Witnesses. We've all met, you know, Mormons or anything like that. You know, we know these people who are not setting forth the correct doctrine of God, and it makes a difference. Well, and even for us, if even in in, in otherwise traditional believing groups, there are things even within the Chalcedonian definition that make people bristle. And I think the most notable is going to be the Theotokos, the idea of Mary as the God bearer. People do not like that language today. Why might they be uncomfortable with that? Well, I mean, kind of like it was at the Council of Ephesus, they're saying, you know, how can God, how can Mary give birth to God? You know, this idea that God is so above all things that it seems offensive to say that he was born of the virgin because we they at least want to say that, you know, God has no beginning and they're right in that, but at the same time Christ's human nature does have a beginning because he was born in time. Right, and there is a union of the natures so that they are, you know, without change or confusion or division or separation. You know? I think they hear Theotokos and say like, oh, that means that Mary gave birth to the Trinity. No, that's not what Theotokos means. It means right. that she gives birth to Christ. And because she gives birth to Christ, she gave birth to God. Well, and that's the thing. People become uncomfortable with traditional Marian doctrines, but ultimately Mary as the God-bearer is a confession of Christ. Right. Exactly, and and there there is, on the one hand, a a zeal to purify things that's good. On the other hand, there's a there's a case of wanting to throw everything historical out with the bathwater, right? And <laughs> we could mix some metaphors there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so I mean, it, it is interesting because you see these polarities within a lot of American churches today, where they want to either reject everything traditional without a thought even going so far as to rewrite the creeds and we and we've seen this right and then the other one which just accepts every practice regardless of whether whether it was historic or or even part of a council or not and accept it just because it's old or looks cool and and you know that that's how you end up like being you know running towards the cops or something like that or being enamored with that sort of thing so there, there has to be some wisdom there, and that's where the norming definitions, like you have at, at Chalcedon, 
are are so important. And and again, these are ultimately confessions about Christ. And and I think I think the same thing could be said about other confessions too, but particularly about the Blessed Virgin Mary and and, and what we're saying about her. Th- those things are are important, and certainly at this time. I do think it gets a little complicated once you get to the 19th century in the Roman Catholic Church, but again, we'll get there eventually. <laughs> you know. Are we just going to keep going down the line and go to the eighth, quote-unquote, ecumenical council too, or what? <laughs> right, we'll just keep going and going. We'll, we'll go to Trent, and then we'll get to uh, your, your Vatican I. We'll do that. We'll even do Vatican II if the Lord tarries. <laughs> Actually, we don't need to do Vatican II. We're living in Vatican II. <laughs> we can just feel it's it pretty firsthand. sad. Yeah. <laughs> right. Look around everything that's wrong. It may well have to do with the 60s and Vatican too. <laughs> even even for Lutherans. Uh, Prove me wrong. I don't know if, <laughs> if I can. If you disagree say if you disagree say so in the comments. <laughs> yeah, right. So that that's where we are. So anything else we want to say about the Chalcedonian definition? No, I think that kind of touches it. I mean, Again, this is a lot of creedal kind of language. It's the stuff that we would normally cover when talking about the Nicene Creed. And it is something maybe worth studying on, you know, in your own time too, to just really delve into what it is that the definition is saying. I'm not sure that, you know, three podcasts could really break it down entirely. So I do think we want to get on in at least in the last few minutes to talking about some of those canons and the, the importance that they have for us today. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I just, I'm glad we're taking the time to talk about this because usually the only time this gets talked about is briefly on Trinity Sunday. <laughs> and then we forget about it until the following until Trinity. Year, yeah. So. <laughs> right. Well, all right. So let's look at some of the, of the canons. Now, there's, you know, a lot. So can't really go through all of them, but I want to look at a few. And if you'll bear with me, I'm just kind of scrolling through my list here of them. A lot of it has to do with things that are going to be so foreign to us, dealing with clergy ranks and dominions, that sort of thing, parish lines being drawn. And suffice it to say, a lot of a lot of it has to do with clerics moving between different areas and bishops not stepping on each other's toes. You have rules for monks and all th- all kinds of things like that um, that just are just so outside of what we're used to talking about as Lutherans. They're submitting oneself to the bishop of a city if you're a clergyman coming into the city, that kind of thing. But let's take a look at say nine. Litigious clerics shall be punished according to canon if they despise the episcopal and resort to the secular tribunal. When a cleric has a contention with a bishop, let him wait till the synod sits, and if a bishop have a contention with his metropolitan, let him carry the case to Constantinople. Now, right there, even before the later canons that deal with Constantinople's authority, you already have Constantinople's authority appealed to in the case of a metropolitan. Right. But most notably is litigious clerics that... This is a biblical principle, right? In Corinthians, we shouldn't be yep. suing one another. Yeah, you should. Yeah, Corinthians says that we should be able to sort our 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 own differences without going to secular courts. We never do that, Willie. <laughs> we never do that. No, no. And see, they're borrowing, uh, you know, from the Bible here. Imagine that. <laughs> but yeah, it is interesting. So you have this biblical principle at play regarding litigation. And then 
tucked in there, you have an appeal to the authority of Constantinople, which I find very interesting. Well, and I think it's also an interesting canon because I think it's illustrating how tightly the church and the Roman Empire are becoming intertwined with one another. You know, I can't imagine in the days of, you know, the persecutions, the Christians ever saying, oh, we're going to go up to, you know, the pagan court and let Caesar, you know, decide all this for us. Yes, I know Paul appeals to Caesar, but that's a little bit different. At the same time, you know, by this time, you have clerics actually saying, I don't want to deal with the bishop. I'm going to bring you before a secular court in clear defiance of what Paul has to say on the matter. So I think there is this kind of increasing right. unity between the church and the state, which will have sure. consequences later. We have some other things here about baptism by heretics and some things like that. 15 is interesting. No person shall be ordained deaconess except she be 40 years of age. <laughs> and if she, if she shall dishonor her ministry by contracting a marriage, let her be anathema. Yeah, that's so older women and they may not marry. That's the ancient understanding of a deaconess, at least at this time. At least at this time. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's interesting, especially because, you know, we put our own interpretations on what we call the diaconal office or what we call a deaconess today. But at least in the time of Chalcedon, as we can see, there might have been an actual fairly different definition, one that might be more in line with Paul talking about older women and, you know, and marriage Correct. and all that sort of stuff. So, Correct. 16. Mon monks or nuns shall not contract marriage, and if they do so, let them be excommunicated. So basically he's saying that a monk or a nun, you know, those who have entered into an ascetic lifestyle have vowed not to be married, and to marry they are breaking their vows. Now, one of the things they're silent on here, but it's going to be obvious once we point it out is they're saying monks or nuns shall not contract marriage, but who is not forbidden to marry? Priests? Yeah, the priests can still marry at this time. Remember, that doesn't... The, the idea that a priest would be completely forbidden from marriage for all intents and purposes doesn't happen in the West until centuries later. Yeah, quite a bit later. But the tradition that... Yeah, the, the tradition that monks or nuns shouldn't be married is is a fairly ancient custom because they have agreed to this and made vows to, to live in such a way. The monastic lifestyle does not accord well with marriage. Sure. And it's kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of contrary to denying oneself, so to speak. I mean, I think as Lutherans, we would still kind of balk at this a little bit and say that, yes, there's kind of the beginnings of what we would say is an unbiblical idea, but at least you can defend it at this point in saying, okay, they've made a vow to do this, and what they're really legislating about is don't break your vows, which is something I think we can get behind. But, but but there are differences between the monastics and the regular clergy or the secular clergy, right. if I can borrow that that definition there. And, and so in, in that case, I can I can live with this. Nobody's forcing them by the sword here. Uh, as soon as I said that, somebody's going to come up with a <laughs> with a with an example of of somebody being forced into a nunnery or whatever. But hey, maybe it was good for that person. I don't know. Well, and I might I might actually be that guy because I know of several cases, at least in later Byzantine history, where if you wanted to get rid of a political opponent, you tonsured him and stuck him in a monastery. But that's beside the point. Right. But that doesn't make it 
bad. It doesn't make the general principle no. bad. <laughs> you know, it, it's a good balance where they have the monastics voluntarily living ascetic lifestyles over here, but the secular clergy also working within the world. It's different from a Benedict option that lets the the modern definition where they, they say, let's everybody just retreat into the mountains. Right, right. There is a biblical tradition of men retreating into the mountains for solitude, and we can agree or disagree on how that develops into, into monasteries and things like that, but if you've got some over here doing this and others here in the world doing this, you know, I think it, I think it, it's, it's not the end of the world. I'll put it that way. <laughs> um, it's not a total retreat by the church by any, by any stretch of the imagination, but we could do a whole episode on, on monks. And now we're running out of time here. So there are, a, 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 you know, a few fun ones like don't seize the goods of a dead Bishop or you'll lose your rank. <laughs> If a clergyman elope with a woman, let him be let him be expelled from the church. If a layman, let him be anathema. I mean, imagine if we practice that. We can't even get that one right. <laughs> We're going to sit here and come down on the monks, and we can't even say, "Hey, don't run around with strange women, or you'll be disciplined." <laughs> we'll go, "No, no, that's too far. That's not gospelly enough. We can't do that." <laughs> My goodness, we can't be. Don't throw stones in glass houses. Oh, I know. I hear you. But but right, but I mean, a clergyman, yeah, obviously shouldn't elope with a woman and a layman, the same thing. Okay, then we come to 28. The bishop of New Rome shall enjoy the same privileges as the bishop of Old Rome on account of the removal of the empire. For, for this reason, the metropolitans of Pontus and Asia, and uh, as well as the barbarian bishop, shall be ordained by the bishop of Constantinople. And then we get some more stuff about Egyptians in the, in the last one, and then you can't degrade a bishop. But there you go. There's 28, it's Old Rome and New Rome enjoy the same privileges. What was the one about spending too much time in Constantinople? I always enjoyed that one. A clergyman shall not spend too much time in Constantinople, <laughs> or he'll be disciplined. To, to put it in our terms, yeah, don't spend too much time at the seminary, you know, always running off on... Yeah, don't spend too much time in St. Louis. <laughs> or Fort yeah. Wayne, you know, always running off to conferences. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it really is it's kind of exactly what it's saying there. And I just paraphrased it there, but it literally is just pretty much don't spend too much time in the holy city. <laughs> oh, here we go, 23. Clerics or monks who spend too much time at Constantinople, contrary to the will of their bishop, and stir up seditions shall be cast out of the city. So don't go to Fort Wayne and heresy hunt is what it's saying. But, but it also kind of sounds like another Egyptian problem because they were always stirring things up in Constantinople, but... We'll we'll deal with the Egyptians more right. in future episodes. So, well, yeah, I mean, but that is what they're saying. Don't go to where the theological powerhouses are or the ecclesial powerhouses are and try to start things, because <laughs> that's not Christian. Don't sue each other and don't stir up rebellion. Those are two two of the canons we at least ought to be able to to agree with. And I'd like to agree with twenty eight because I want Constantinople to come back because <laughs> it still stands in my heart. Well, look matters. at the time. Time for a crusade. Look at the time. Time for a crusade. And it's also time to close this episode. Zellin, any last words? No, I think that's a, a good overview of the, the council in its history and in its uh, theology. We'll be, of course, continuing on to the fifth ecumenical episode. I'm not sure at what time, but that's going to involve a much larger time jump because whereas this one was only a gap of 20 years, the next one won't occur for more than 100. So... Join us next time when we talk about the Fifth Ecumenical Council. Should be a good time. 
All right, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. God love you, and God bless. For it must again and again be repeated that one and the same is truly Son of God and truly Son of Man. God, in that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Man, in that the Word became flesh and dwelt in us. God, in that all things were made by him, and without him was nothing made. Man, in that he was made of a woman, made under law. The nativity of the flesh was the manifestation of human nature. The childbearing of a virgin is the proof of divine power. The infancy of a babe is shown in the humbleness of its cradle. The greatness of the Most High is proclaimed by the angels' voices. He whom Herod treacherously endeavors to destroy is like ourselves in our earliest stage. But he whom the Magi delight to worship on their knees is the Lord of all. So too, when he came to the baptism of John, his forerunner, lest he should not be known through the veil of flesh, which covered his divinity, the Father's voice, thundering from the sky, said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased.